Let's begin by looking once again at verse 5 and then reading down to 11. It says, For he did not subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things are, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So as we look at verse 11, let's recap where we ended last week. We looked at the verse 10 as it says, For it was fitting for him to whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And then the focus of today's text is the uh, verse immediately after that. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Upon our assessment of last week's study in verse 10, we've come to realize that there are three subjects in this verse. Look at verse 10 again. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So our, our three subjects are him, God the Father, the sons, that will be the church, the brethren, and then the author, that's the author of their salvation, namely Jesus Christ. So in our assessment, we look at verse 1, for it was fitting for him, it was in line and according to the character of God in the exhibition of his attributes to bring sons to glory and to do so only by the perfection of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. We see the phrase, they're fitting for him, the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign because he is in control. He is in control over his character. He's in authority over his actions. There is never a lapse in judgment on the part of God and never a failure. Therefore, he alone is able to preserve his reputation. Likewise, his sovereignty shines through to display for everyone that he, in fact, is the infinite almighty God. As the following phrase, uh, following phrases show uh, his causal purpose for man and his creation and in general, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, we see for a moment that we will continue on uh, later as we return to the sovereignty of God in this passage as it is referred to. And we'll move on now to the second point in that it says, bringing many sons to glory. Again, last week we saw this, men 
created men will now be brought to glory, brought to somewhere where they cannot get apart from Christ. This reveals the two distinct uh, things about men that are in the passage. The first being that he was created. Uh, He is to be the focal point of God. He is to be the marvelous work of God that, that everyone would see how powerful God is in the creation of man even though we do know that God uh, shows his ability to create, shows his power, shows his sovereignty in all of creation, it is magnified as man is created. And, and he does so in that man is who worships him. Man is to bear his image. No other creation has done that. And uh, man is to proclaim the greatness of God. But secondly, we notice that mankind must also be brought to glory. We see that that man is a creation, but we see also a need in man, a need to be brought to glory, for he has none on his own. Man has no glory apart from God, and therefore there is this inherent dependency upon uh, God in, on part of man uh, for glory, because he cannot obtain it on his own. And it's realized with this particular statement. Man is being sons, described there, brought to glory this is this is the dependency that we see we're lacking of glory so we see man in his creation meant to glorify god meant to praise and meant to worship god and then we see man that is lacking something man is lacking jesus christ there is none no glory it's a race that is run in vain if we do not have a race that is won by Christ. But nevertheless, the idea is that we do exist in a post-Adam fallen world and we exist naturally as ones who hate God, ones who are at enmity with Him. But He has purposed the fall of Adam to bring glory and in it man would be redeemed And he'd be be redeemed by God's will and according to God's plan. Here's where we are picking up again on the sovereignty from the first point. As we look back at chapter 2 verse 10 from last week. We're short of the line. This is what's being presented to us. And though the work of Christ on Calvary's cross is bringing us up to the line so that we may cross it so that we may finish the race and this is the reality in bringing many sons to glory the accomplished work of christ notice i had someone a couple weeks ago and they said this or either we heard it bethany and i that that man was to be running the race with christ but i'm Caused to think at what Christ said upon the cross, it is finished. The race is already won for those who would win the race because it's won in Christ. And for those who would not win the race, it's because they're not in the race, because they're apart from Christ and they have never uh, been striving towards salvation, certainly because it can't be strived for, and they certainly haven't uh, been striving for righteousness because without Christ they can see no righteousness. They can uh, comprehend not anything that is righteous because it is revealed only through the person of Christ. Therefore, we see in this passage that man is short of the line, he's short of salvation, he's short, short of righteousness, but he crosses 
the finish line with Christ and with Christ alone because Christ is there waiting. Christ has already accomplished the work of salvation. This reveals to us the truth of redemption, the truth of adoption as sons, the treatment of a true descendant. This is what it's talking about, bringing many sons. We're talking about not people who are simply given a a consolation prize because they believe in Jesus Christ, but they're treated as Christ because the church is married in one sense to Christ. She is betrothed to Christ and he is redeeming his bride. And because of that, she is receiving the full measure of this glory that is being described here because she belongs to Christ and because we are considered as true descendants. We notice that many times in in the New Testament as the Jews were being preached the gospel, they had to be reminded that they weren't truly descendants of Abraham. Uh, Brother Pat talked about it this morning. A true descendant of Abraham is one who is looking for the Messiah, who is trusting in the Messiah. Now we have the revelation of who that is. It's Jesus Christ. We must be striving uh, with a like mind and an attitude of Christ, acting as disciples should actually behave. Excuse me. But here we have these true descendants. We have people who are receiving the benefits of the one who was by birth a son. That's who Christ is. This is why Christ uh, refers to salvation and regeneration as being born again, where one leaves a family of doom, a family of despair, a family destined for hell, and a family that whose father is the head is Satan. You are of your father Satan, it was said. And here we have one who now is joining the family of God. And how can we do that? Because we believe and trust in Jesus Christ with a repentant faith, and we turn from sin. This is the family of God where the Almighty God is the Father, and Jesus Christ is the Son, and He is God, and He is the Head. This is the distinct picture of mankind. And then the third subject from verse 10, the bringing these sons to glory, it's accomplished through the perfection, uh, the perfecting of Jesus Christ through sufferings which means not that Jesus was ever anything less than perfect at any point in time, but this actually is is how we see it is this, is that for that in and of itself, that would denote imperfection on behalf of Christ, and that's certainly not what we would would preach. Christ was always perfect uh, because a single sin would be deserving of hell. Therefore, he could not have sinned even a single time. But we come to understand that he is the one who is is without sin, who was without sin, who will always be without sin, and he never could have committed a single one. Thus we see that Jesus also is the creator of all things. He is the plan of salvation. He wrote the plan. He met the obligations. He fulfilled the plan, and he has sealed the deal, so to speak. It's sealed how so? Through his sufferings. This is what the passage is describing in verse 10. Becoming for a little while lower than the angels, suffering the shameful cross, which was the wrath of God, the literal wrath of God that belonged to sinful man. The truth of this suffering and shame is that it did not belong to Christ, but it belonged to us. But his sovereignty reigned in these things supreme. God controlling every decision, every outcome, every event, and every circumstance thus far. And then we arrive 
to verse 11. Verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason, excuse me, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This verse begins to show us why all of these things proceeding in the previous verses can make sense. This is the, the summation, the, the culmination of all of those things up until uh, the end of verse 10. It shows us how these things can serve as the fulfillment of the obligation of God upon man. How do we see this? Well, look at the very beginning. It says, for both. Broken down into two distinct groups. Notice that. Well, the only time we would say both is if that we want to, to relay the idea that there are two groups being spoken about. This is monumental that we understand that although God identifies with man uh, through the person of Jesus Christ and he bears the sin of man, he is still fully God. And so here we have a, the, per, the purpose of the verse being broken up that way. It says, for both. Because why? Man has one nature, and that is human nature. Jesus Christ has a divine nature, which separates him. It says, for both, two distinct groups. Yet the second one is only existing because of the first. Mankind is only existing because the first supreme God, Jesus Christ, who comes in the flesh, is already existing. That is the church being described, the second group. The church is only existing because of Christ. There will be no need for worshipers unless Christ had created man. There would be no need for a bride unless Christ was a groom. There would be no need for salvation unless there was those who were short, who were fallen short. You see, the idea is that salvation really is uh, something that is under the complete sovereign control of Jesus Christ because there has always been a need for man to have God. There has always been a need for righteousness. And this is shown and it's revealed to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We can't know anything about ourselves unless we know the complete perfection of Jesus Christ. For both, it says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. For both, he who sanctifies. Notice that Jesus Christ comes first. Even in the sentence, it's a proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ was before man was. And that Jesus Christ must fulfill first what man cannot fulfill. Jesus Christ is the forerunner. Jesus Christ is the one who is the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is the only sanctifier. Notice that for both. He who sanctifies. It's very uh, a finite description of one who can sanctify. It is singular. It says he he alone, Jesus Christ, the only way to eternal life, the only way to heaven, the only way to the Father, Jesus Christ, He who sanctifies. He begins the sanctifying. 
himself. John chapter 17 describes this. We'll see how, how wonderful it is. It says, um, uh, this is in the high priestly prayer, of course, and it says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now, first, what we need to understand about sanctification, it's the setting apart and making holy. Anyone who has seen Jesus Christ and heard the gospel knows that they cannot make themselves holy. Why? Because they didn't know what holy was until they knew Jesus Christ. But here we have it. He says, I sanctify myself for their sake. This part of the verse and this particular verse is denoting the divine power of Christ to set himself apart as holy. No mere man can do that. No mere prophet can do that. No special Jew except for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God incarnate, can this happen. The power of Christ to set himself apart is revealed. And it's according to the will of God. All of these things that he is praying here in John chapter 17 is according to the will of the Father who sent him. Notice this verse is also not lacking in that it also shows the sanctification of believing men and it's done so through the truth. It says, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified. How will I sanctify them? It's through the truth is how he describes it. The washing with the word. It's not just for your wives. It's for every bride-to-be. It's for every bride of Christ, bride of man. The, the idea of the headship of man is to wash his wife with the word. Jesus Christ is washing his wife, his bride, with the word. And this is how he sanctifies them, through the truth. This is the very Lamb of God doing what he should do, covering with his blood, for his blood is the truth, his blood is the word, where the word became flesh, Jesus Christ the Messiah, cleansing and setting apart by his holy decree whereby we also see that Christ is the sanctifier of men he makes us holy he sets us apart and he does so by bringing faith and repentance the truth is that the word is not able through truth to sanctify men unless we understand that this word is the word of God Unless we trust that this is the Word of God, unless we respond to it rightfully, you can say that you believe the Bible is the Word of God, but the truth is, if you are not saved, you really don't believe that. Your practice shows it. If we're true disciples, we know that we'll keep the commandments of Christ, he says, and we truly will show that we love Him by this. Therefore, this bringing of repentance and bringing a, a faith at the same time, simultaneously, it's a repentant faith, it shows up in how we deal with one another and how we deal with sin and how we look at ourselves. If we go to Acts chapter 26, verse 18, it says, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet. I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
Notice that this is what we're seeing in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, Christ describes it there in Acts chapter 26. They're sanctified by faith in me. How does that come? How does faith in Christ come? Does it simply come because we pray a prayer to be saved? Absolutely not. Not saying that you can't pray a prayer and that happened, but that can't be the basis of which it happens. Jesus describes that. He says, I will open their eyes. I will open their eyes and to turn them from darkness. What turns you from darkness to light? What turns you from the path of destruction to the narrow path that is following Christ into the gate, the sheep's gate of heaven? It is the power of God in Christ. Christ is turning from darkness and turning men to light, turning men to himself. Where also we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, and ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of of our God. Here's the reality. All of this is building up to show us not only the humanity and fulfillment of man's responsibility in Jesus Christ, but it's made to show us the divine nature of Christ and how he brings many sons to glory. We see in this verse that Christ's work is accomplished by his name. His name is wonderful. His name is powerful. His name is magnificent. It's to be exalted. And we see that his work is applied and it's applied by his spirit. Therefore, we have this threefold testament to the work of Christ as he is being from God. And he is being not only from God the Father, but he's being by God sent. And he's being in God the propitiation. And through God, he's applying the work of the cross to the saints. The Spirit is working in the lives of believers to make holy what was once unholy according to the absence of righteousness. This means all who have no Jesus have no righteousness, therefore they are unholy, therefore there is a need for them to believe in Jesus Christ so that He will convert them to be holy and set apart, to be righteous, and to have eternal life. Consider First Peter chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Quite simply, Christ is sanctifying through His Helper, through His Comforter, the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God. This is the sovereignty of God, the foreknowledge of God the Father working for sanctification through the power of the Spirit as it is applying the power of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. Why does Christ cleanse? Why does Christ make us holy? The answer again lies within the sovereignty. All things are in subjection to Him, we're taught. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. We'll start with verse 1. It tells us why. Furthermore, when we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received 
of us how ye ought to walk and to please God. So ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Notice that all of these things, righteousness, holiness, sanctification, justification, are required if we're to be considered children of God or sons of God. And notice that all of these are described as these things that are the will of God for us. We are made to be sanctified because why? Like the parent says to the child, because he said so. Why are we sanctified? Why are we believing in Jesus Christ? Why do we do this? Why should we do that? Why do we trust in Jesus? It's just like my mom and dad would tell me why, if I asked why. They said, because I said so. Because Jesus, because God the Father before earth was ever created has declared we as the church are to be sanctified. We are to be cleansed and we're to be cleansed by Jesus Christ through the application of his blood, by the word, by faith, and by hearing. All things in subjection to Jesus Christ. His will. And we notice that in Matthew it says, as we're taught to pray, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before the visible heavens and earth are created, God's will for man existed. All things are called to be in subjection to man, but certainly unto Jesus Christ, the God-man. And all things are done for His glory and for His honor and for His purpose. In order that we might see this more clearly as we continue, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is sanctifying you through Christ. As you look at this, describes him the God of peace sanctifying you this is a a reality that sanctification is not uh, upon this earth complete because this is being written this first thessalonians an, an epistle to believers to churches who already have christ who already have as a present possession eternal life yet they have a need to be sanctified wholly completely that is and he says, I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord, there is a need to continually be sanctified. Christ is sanctifying you. The spirit is the one doing the work, applying what Christ has sent him to do. That must also Describe to us the three persons in one God. Jesus Christ is God. Just as a side note, we realize that as the scripture is written, God will, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly sanctify you. 
as Paul prayed. Why? You may remember this, and it caused me to think of it as I, as I went past. And considering the high priestly prayer of Christ, there was this same element there. Why would this be true? Paul prays it, but how, come, how can we know that this exact thing will happen as Paul has prayed it? Because this is Scripture. Follow me here. Scripture is inspired of God. Paul could not write these things on his own and it be accounted as Scripture. This is inspired by God through the power of the Spirit. And because the Spirit is testifying, Paul is writing these things. Therefore, if, if this is true, it must be according to the will of God. And all things prayed according to His will shall be done, the Bible says. Marvelous truth when we consider the prayers of the Bible. Not only are they, are they a comfort, but we have to see that what these people are praying in the Bible, every prayer is answered, and it's answered according to the will of God. How do we know that no prayer is left unanswered? Because God has given the prayer. God has inspired the men to write these prayers because it is His will. And because it is His will, these things will be done. So in all this, we see that Christ is the one who sanctifies. And then we see the church, those who are being sanctified. It says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. This is the church, the brethren, as many epistles will show. And it's the truth that the Jews hated, that we could be considered brethren to Christ because Christ considered himself of course the son of God this is what they hated to hear and this is what the world will hate to hear that we would somehow claim kinship with the Messiah and somehow because we have a kinship with the Messiah we could be related we could be in the family of God this is what the unbelieving world hates one father and it's not Abraham it's not Abraham it's not David and it is not Moses. The one Father we have is God. God the Father. And because of that, there is this unity described here. There is this oneness. Just like marriage, the two become one. This one is being Christ now not only is Christ, of course, the Christ, now the bride of Christ is considered as Christ is. Uh, he's beloved by the Father. Therefore, the bride is beloved by the Father. This is the absolute and infinite definition of unity. We can never describe, we can never understand this side of heaven, all that this relationship with Christ describes and how unified we are. Christ unifies us so well, in fact, that we become sons of God, it says in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, for as many as received him gave him the right to become sons of God, children of God. This is the reality. As the God, Jesus, takes up a body at the incarnation, he brings deity to mankind through one man, that being himself. In doing that, he's bringing righteousness to men. He's bringing perfection to men. He's bringing all the things that once separated us because of the lack of from God. Now he's separating uh, the distance from, from God to man. He's bringing them together. He's closing the gap. He's bridging, for lack of a better term, 
This is what Christ is doing. It's the meeting of two distinct natures. And it carries with it the unification of man to God. Whereas it is done through Christ and we can become alive in Him and in Him alone. In that, as we see the bridegroom, it represents the head. This is Christ. And second, we see Adam, the fulfillment thus of the way, the truth of the life. Christ being the second Adam or the first Adam causes us to die and this is what we see, Christ, the way, the truth, the life, the vine, the resurrection, the root of any glory that man would ever have. And that's really what this passage is talking about, bringing many sons to glory. It must be rooted upon the foundation who is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment. This is the reconciliation. It's to God, provided through God, Gifted to man. Gifted to man by the will of God and Jesus Christ. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Again, we must revert back to the sovereignty of God. There is a unity in Christ because it was the will of Christ. Why would Christ willingly be ashamed to call us brethren if He so willingly gave Himself as He describes? And the truth is that He wouldn't. But the reality is that this is such a great mystery to the writer, the penman of the Hebrews, because He's placing Uh, after he's seen how perfect Christ is and he sees how fallen short he is and he sees how nasty and sin-stained and how iniquitous he is, he's thinking, if I was the Christ, I would be ashamed to call him brethren. The apostles, the disciples. We see many dissensions because when they were around Jews, they would act like Jews. And when they were around the Gentiles, they would act like Gentiles. But if the Jews showed up, hey, we got to get back over here. This is why Paul in Galatians Chapter 2 says he confronted Peter to his face. It's the idea that man would be shameful to call other sinful man brethren. But this is the great wonder, the great mystery of of adoption into the family of God through Jesus Christ. This is the the mystery that is revealed to us. Human nature would say, distinguish yourselves from these other sinners. Don't, Don't be known by these people. Why would Christ sit and eat with this woman? Why would he talk with her? Why would he do this? Why would he do that? There's this idea that man sees sin in levels. But the reality is that when it gets to this portion, the penman is given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a true view of himself. For this reason, he is not ashamed. He's drawing a distinction that only Christ would not be ashamed. That all all other people would be ashamed. Therefore, there must be this unity in Christ. There must truly be this oneness. For He is not ashamed for His bride. He is the holiness of the bride. He is the salvation of 
of those being sanctified. Truly, if they are to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it is because they come under the subtitle in the Lamb's Book of Life, Jesus Christ. They're covered under the blood of Christ. Their filthiness and their sinfulness was done away with as He absorbed the wrath of God. He has effectually and forever adopted us into His family as heirs, as recipients of salvation whereby which we get eternal life. This is Jesus Christ, the very God. As He is referred to as the Son of God. Likewise, if we are His bride, then we too are considered brethren. For He is the firstborn. He is the head. He is the leader. And He is not ashamed because everything that He has done has brought glory and honor to the Father. Next week, we'll begin to look further into this, into this unashamed response to calling men brethren and what Christ has done. But the idea that we should get this morning is that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Your sin is sending you to hell. Not the ones that you'll do tomorrow. Not the ones that you did yesterday. But the one that you'll do in just a moment. If you do not believe and trust in Jesus Christ, hell is real. Separation from God is a terrible thing. It's because it really is against the created order. We're meant to worship. We're meant to praise. We're not created to do what we want to do, but we're created to serve one Master. One God, Jesus Christ. If we have not Him, we have no glory. We have no righteousness. We have no goodness. We have no love. But as Paul says, we would be a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. At the very best, all we could do without Christ is cause havoc and commotion. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we uh, look into your word, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would apply these truths, Lord, that you would give us spiritual discernment and that uh, you would cause growth from the reality of who Christ is and how we have seen him uh, throughout our study of the Hebrews. But most certainly this morning, Lord, would you give us a, a great measure of respect and admiration for Jesus Christ? Would you cause within our hearts, Lord, repentance and that we may exercise our faith in our following of Jesus Christ. Lord, we just ask that you would give us a, a greater knowledge of who he is even as we study in our own private times, Lord, and for uh, the ones who are here that aren't saved, Lord, we just pray that Jesus Christ become a reality that, that each person consider how detrimental it is to die without Christ and how death is upon our doorstep how it could happen at any moment Lord and if that we would die separated without Jesus Christ there's no hope no hope whatsoever Lord would you provide for us a 
hedge of protection, both spiritually and physically, that we may continue to proclaim the gospel while we're on this earth, Lord. And we just ask that uh, you truly would provide the increase, Lord, and if it would be your will that you would allow us as the Church of Sovereign Grace Baptist in Anniston to see the growth that you provide to see the increase lord we would be uh, gratefully honored and and at the same time awestruck to see how the mystery of the gospel can be revealed and men could be changed lord we just ask that you would receive our worship as well this morning and that you would continue to bless and lord as we go next door to partake of the the meal that you have provided uh, through your people we just ask that you would bless this food lord and that you would give us a desire to be fed, not only in the temporal sense, but to be fed spiritually. And Lord, we just thank you for all of your grace and your mercy and all of your blessings toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.